was reading a thing about a pastor in England by the name of Martin Dale. He wrote this. He says, about 20 years ago, I went on a training conference when I was working as a patent attorney for a Swiss multinational company called Sandoz. And one of the conundrums they set us, sent, set us on was to test our ingenuity, and it was this. You're on a plane flying over the desert, and you're sitting near the cockpit. You hear the captain giving the coordinates to the tower at 1,500 hours. Half an hour later, however, <coughs> excuse me, the plane crashes in an uninhabited part of the desert in which the only vegetation is a few cactus trees. But before the plane crashes, you hear the captain sending off an SOS message to the tower, and you hear them reply, but you can't make out what they said. The plane crashes, and no one is hurt, but the radio is totally destroyed. And it looks as if the plane is going to explode in a few minutes' time. In the plane, there are ten things that you can see that can be taken out of the plane, but you can only take three of them. What three items would best ensure your survival and why? You have three minutes to get into groups and decide. And then he lists the ten items. A bottle of water, a box of salt tablets, a parachute, a knife, a sun hat, a lady's vanity mirror, a watch, compass, first aid box, sunglasses. Question. Decide in your group what three items are most important that you would take to ensure your survival, and you only have three minutes to decide. And then tell the group, start now, three minutes later, stop. What did you decide? Well, the answer, according to the U.S. military's top survival expert, was as follows. The third most important item was the knife, because it can be used to cut the cactuses to provide drinking water. The second most important item is the parachute. Huh? <laughs> because once the plane blows up, you have no shelter from the sun. And the most important item is the lady's vanity mirror, because you can use it to reflect the light of the sun and attract the attention of the planes when they come looking for you. But I want to intensify the conundrum for a little bit. Let's make it even more real. Suppose while you are still on the plane, you only have three minutes in order to decide with your fellow passengers what three items to take. Some dominant personality type, you know the type, he takes over the conversation, doesn't listen to anybody, and insists that you take what you know to be all the wrong items. Your very survival is at stake, and you just know this guy is wrong, but because of the deadline, you have to go along with him. You know, he gets his way. There's one in every bunch. But what if... One of your fellow passengers says, I was in special ops in Afghanistan, and I've gone through extensive survival training, and these are the three items we need for survival in the conversation. You would listen to him. And because of his training, you know that he could also handle the guy who's all mouthy and could steer you wrong. And you would be grateful that he was with you in this whole thing, that he was in charge. For a couple of weeks now, we've been studying from God's Word what it means to be led by the Spirit of God, what it means to be a Spirit-filled and a Spirit-led church. And the key to being a Spirit-led church and even a Spirit-filled and led Christian is the presence of God, the presence of God. His Holy Spirit indwells us, fills us, encourages us, empowers us. God is present with us. You remember that uh, the first Sunday we talked about this, we defined to be led by the Spirit this way. 
To be led by the Spirit of God means to be consciously aware of being in God's presence, listening to His voice, and responding accordingly. When it comes to our Christian walk and the decisions that we make, not only do we have the advantage of having God's word that was God-breathed, is God-breathed, as men were born along by the Holy Spirit, as a ship is carried across the waves by the wind, not only do we have the advantage of the Holy Spirit who illumines our hearts and minds as we study God's word, we have the advantage of God actually being present with us by his Holy Spirit. In every decision we make, in everything that we do, and everything that we go through, God is with us. And we're going to see this morning from God's word, God does awesome things. God does awesome things because of the Spirit of God. We have the advantage to see God do awesome things. We actually have the advantage of being in his awesome presence and seeing him work. So please turn once again to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, where Paul has been talking about there's two kinds of wisdom. There's the wisdom of the world, and there's the wisdom of God. And we're back to seeing what we've seen over and over again in this study. Who are you going to listen to? Of all the voices that are crying out for attention and telling us what to do and what to believe and, and who to vote for and all those kinds of things this time of year, this, this season. You know, who are we going to vote for? Are we going to listen to the wisdom of God or are we going to listen to those who are totally out to lunch and maybe even be dangerous? Paul says in verse 6, Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. There's two kinds of wisdom. There's the rulers and the wisdom of this age. The wisdom of the world, if we were to put it this way, is the sum total of human experience. You touch a hot stove and you learn not to do that again. Or if you're like me, sometimes you have to learn things over and over again. You get enough hot stove experiences, you gain wisdom. Now, it doesn't mean when it talks about the wisdom of the world that it's all bad. The wisdom of the world and, and man using his God-given intellect, God gave us that intellect as we are uh, created in his image, has made remarkable discoveries in, in mathematics, in science, in, in cell phones, and in, in iPads, and medical discoveries and procedures. Marvelous discoveries related to our physical world. And we're, we're blessed this morning to have this thing called air conditioning where we can turn on the blower of the furnace that keeps running it through those filters. So we try to keep that smoke on the outside. But Paul says this kind of wisdom is passing away. It's transitory. Paul says the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age are passing away. Now when Paul talks about the rulers of this age here. He's not talking about the God of this age. There is Satan who is the God of this age who has control and power over all the systems and false systems of the world. But here Paul is talking about the actual earthly rulers who depend upon earthly wisdom. It's the idea that without God's wisdom, earthly rulers are clueless. They don't get it. They really can't solve problems at all. And we also see that man's wisdom fails, and it fails miserably when it comes to the purposes of God and his ways and understanding his ways. 
You might remember the parable of the landover, land, land rover, landowner in Luke chapter, chapter 6. Three times the landowner sent a slave to collect a share of the crops from the sharecroppers, and three times the land, the tenants of the land beat the slave and sent him back packing. And so the landowner sent his own son to collect the share of the crops. And these sharecroppers reasoned in their minds. Luke says they reasoned among themselves. They applied worldly wisdom. And they decided if they killed the son of the landowner, that they would inherit the land themselves. What on earth were their perverted minds thinking? It made no sense to anyone except to themselves. They reasoned among themselves, and that's what they came up with. And that's what the rulers of this age do. With their perverted thinking, they come up with something that makes sense to them, and it only makes sense to them. Go down to verse 8 of the second chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, of God's wisdom, there is God's wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they'd understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The rulers at the time, both Jews and Gentiles, condemned Jesus Christ to death, the Son of God, proof positive that earthly rulers do not have God's wisdom. Had they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. At the time, neither the Jews to whom the gospels, gospel was a stumbling block nor the Gentiles to whom the gospel is foolishness understood the divine wisdom. In their ignorance of God, they willingly executed the Son of God. Contrast to the voice of human wisdom, we see God's hidden wisdom. Verse 7, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. God's wisdom is a mystery, he says. Well, what's a mystery? In, in scriptures, in the New Testament, a mystery is not something that you can figure out or something that has to be figured out. It's not like an Agatha Christie novel. In scripture, a mystery is something of the plan of God, the way he purposes things, the way he plans things, that was previously hidden, but now God has revealed it. In scripture, the church is called a mystery. Because who would have thought of in the Old Testament, or it's not revealed in the Old Testament, that Jews and Gentiles would become in Christ one body. That all the distinctions, earthly distinctions, would be put away. One of the, the great mysteries is where Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we will all be changed in a moment of the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. It was something of God's plan that wasn't revealed. Now it is revealed. It is a, a mystery. A mystery is something that was held secret by God until he revealed it. And only he can reveal it because he's the only one that knows it. That's why it's hidden. It was part of his divine plan. Humankind could never figure it out. And the really neat thing about God's mysteries is that it is well beyond human wisdom and imagination. Verse 9, quoting Isaiah, Paul writes, But th just as is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which has not entered the heart of man. 
Never thunk it up. All that God has prepared for those who love him. All that God has prepared. You know, one of the things I really enjoy about studying God's word is going back to the Old Testament and reading the verses that are quoted in the New Testament. So let's go back. Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 4, the fourth verse. Let's go back to see what Isaiah is saying. It's page 919 in the, the Bible's in the rack. Isaiah chapter 4, beginning at the first verse, or 64, excuse me. When people look at me funny, I know, well, I've done it again. I have misspoken. <laughs> if politicians could learn that, they would do a whole lot better, too. <laughs> but it's a, it's a good habit to get into, to go back and find, you know, because we read the passage because we gain a wealth of understanding of what Paul wants us and, and his readers to understand. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1. Isaiah is praying. And praying to the Lord, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your, main, your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. And then verse 4 here, is what Paul quoted in 1 Corinthians. Nor from days of old they have heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. Isaiah prays that God would rend, would tear open the heavens, that he would tear open the heavens and that he would come down in the same way that Mount Sinai shook when God was present, that the mountains of the earth would shake. Isaiah looked at what was going on in the world and in Israel at the time, all the horrible stuff that was going on, how Israel had turned their backs on God. They worshipped idols. He looked at the corruption of the kings and the nations of the earth, Babylon, Assyria, Edom, Damascus, the godless activities that were taking place. Isaiah says that Israel was a sinful nation. They were people weighed down with iniquity. They were the offspring of evildoers. Sons who acted corruptly, they had abandoned the Lord, they despised the Holy One of Israel, and they had turned away from God. And as Isaiah saw it, things couldn't get any worse. And Isaiah wants God to rip open the heavens, come down, and shake this thing up. And he uses a beautiful picture here because it says, like fire kindles uh, the, the brushwood. You know, what I thought of at that time, you know, if you put a put a fire in the middle of a parchment or a piece of paper, how it just opens up or as water boils, would you come down and with your fiery presence make yourself known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked because you were here. When God comes down, he makes his makes known, he makes known his inescapable presence. When God came down, he parted the waters of the Red Sea. He poured out the plagues upon Egypt until even godless Pharaoh had to tell Moses, go and worship the Lord, go and worship Yahweh. Pharaoh used the name of God there. Who is this God? We know no name. Pharaoh uses it. Then when Pharaoh hardened his heart once again, 
And his chariots chased after the Hebrews through the Red Sea. God caused the wall of water to crush in on the chariots. And when the sons of Israel saw the dead Egyptians on the seashore, Exodus says, when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. Isaiah is crying out, like that, Lord, <laughs> like that. Do it that way. Come down and do it that way. That's what Isaiah wants. Tear open the heavens, come down, show yourself to your adversaries and the thing, and do things that we do not even expect and bring your people back to you. Show us the awesome things that you do in your presence. Verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 64 again. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. These days we talk a lot about the last days, being in the last days, the second coming of Christ, that Jesus is coming again, and we should. We expect his coming. We are to anticipate it. And we should be ready. We look at our world, we see what's going on, and we know that it must be soon, that one day God's going to roll back the heavens like a scroll, and the Son of God is going to come in all his glory. The Bible calls it the blessed hope, the hope of his appearing. But even that blessed event is not the only event that Isaiah and Paul are talking about. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his writings, Isaiah saw the heavens opened, as it were, and Messiah coming, being born of a virgin as a baby. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. <coughs> Several times Isaiah mentioned that God would put his spirit upon Christ. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus quoted Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. If you want to go back just a couple of chapters there, 61, the first verse. Because this is the prophet, prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus wrote, read when he opened the scroll in the synagogue. Concerning himself, he said, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable day, year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. When God comes down, he makes known his inescapable presence. When God came down at Pentecost, and those of you who are visiting today or weren't here last week, we were talking about Pentecost and the noise and the wind and all those kind of things. I explain, when I was explaining the wind, we had a violent hailstorm right here. <laughs> and God gave us a visible object lesson of what that is like. When God came down at Pentecost, there was a noise like a violent rushing wind. It filled the whole house. There were tongues of fire like an Idaho brush fire. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. That's also what Isaiah is talking about. Lord, show us the awesome things that you do in your presence. Show us, Lord. And here is the tremendous thing. The cry of Isaiah that will be answered at Jesus' second coming when God comes down. 
The cry of Isaiah that was answered when Jesus came to earth as a man. The cry of Isaiah that was answered the day at Pentecost when God came down, as it were, and filled the disciples. It's also answered in each one of us who are filled with the Spirit of the living God. We should expect God to do awesome things in his presence. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul quotes Isaiah. Just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Did you get how that last line of that verse ends? All, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Can you personalize that? All that God has prepared for me because I love him. You know, this is not just, I go and prepare a place for you promise. You know, a few weeks ago, we talked about all those things that, that we're going to experience in heaven's glories, at least what we know in scripture. It's not, it is a promise of heaven's glory is what God has prepared, but it's not just the promise of the glory of heaven. And it's not only salvation, it's not only redemption, it's not only justification and the forgiveness of sins. It's not just the promise of the Holy Spirit, his spiritual gifts, his calling. It's all that God has prepared for you who love him. That in the person of his Holy Spirit, God lives in us. He is present in us. He is with us. And then he does awesome things in his presence. Awesome things. When God makes known his presence, awesome presence in us, he does awesome things. And we need to understand that in the scriptures, only God is awesome. Nobody else is awesome. And only things he does are awesome. We, we've downgraded that big time. You know, everybody uses the word awesome like it's the most incredible thing they could think of or do something. But we're talking about seeing God do things he can only do. We're talking about the presence, awesome presence of God that's only in his, his presence. The answer to Isaiah's prayer and the reason that Paul is quoting it in 1 Corinthians is because it's fulfilled in each one of us who know Christ. That Pentecost wasn't just for the 120 who were praying. That Pentecost is for you. It's for me. And our prayer can be like Isaiah, Lord, show us the awesome things that you do in your presence. What is on your heart today? What are the things that are bothering you where you need to see God work? <laughs> And I'm not talking about the big political picture. That, that, that's a given. You know? And uh, we, we could, yeah, we won't even go there the, the, this morning. But what is it in your life where your prayer is like Isaiah? God, come down and show us awesome things. Shake this thing up. Make it right. Make it right, Lord. But what is it in our own lives that are, that are going on that we need to see God work? 
What is the suffering that we are facing? What are the decisions that need to be made? And we can trust when we pray, God, will you come down? May the mountain shake because in your presence we see awesome things. Shall we pray? Father, eye has not seen and ear has not heard the things that you have prepared for us, all the things, Lord. Father, I pray that as we, each one of us, work through the decisions that we need to make or, or as we suffer under the things that have come upon us, Lord, that uh, we would just be pressed more deeply into your heart, into your presence. That our first response wouldn't be to, to go to the outside and try to figure these things out and, and work them out, Father, but our first response would come, would be to push, push through the veil, come into your holy presence, to know you, to know you and the power, the power of your resurrection. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.